Well, those of us who heard Jack Herbert last week will be longing to hear what I have to say this week on the subject from Goethe to Jung. This is opening up whole areas of ignorance in me and perhaps in many of us. And uh, so I won't take any more time, Jack. Right, you are, Kathleen. I think my problem, uh, uh, ladies and gentlemen, my problem this week will be like last week to some extent is shortness of time, but we'll see what will happen. Um, I've called this from Goethe to Jung, Dialectics of the Psyche, and I will be talking um, mainly about Goethe and Jung, but with various sallies now and again to various things leading off. Goethe and Jung, in the light of my title, Dialectics of the Psyche, however, are fairly um, endemic um, or central to the German tradition. And I would argue that their ways of thinking are, as I hope you will see, quite comparable and are typical not only of themselves, but also of most of the major thinkers inside the German tradition. That is, say, up until about Jung's death in 1961. Now, to start off with some background to Goethe. Germany, during the late 1760s through till 1775, when the young Goethe was studying law at the universities of Leipzig and Strasbourg, um, then invited on a permanent basis to the Weimar court, was a strange and somewhat bizarre mixture, that's the impression one gets, of scattered French-type courts, often French-speaking, not German, and university towns equally oriented towards France and French-style education. Strasbourg, obviously so, but Leipzig apparently also, with a definite culture of wit and galanterie which pulled up the young 16-year-old short just after his arrival. Um, this seems to have been due to a genuine shock of cultures, for the poet had been born and bred, as you probably all know, at Frankfurt on Main, an old riverside city with an imperial seat, free charter, and Protestantism as the main religion. It stood in a network of road and water, a centre of handicrafts, but with wool, cotton, French silks, and metals passing through. Then, as now, it was a city of bankers, Yet its townscape was apparently undoubtedly quite uh, medieval. And it is interesting to note that the boy Goethe was educated via texts and translation exercises more 16th and 18th century. Compared to Leipzig, Frankfurt must have been provincial. In one of his first letters home, the new student has this to say. I'll just give you the English for this. In Leipzig, no ancient period calls back the onlooker. This is a newly departed age that announces itself in these monuments, bustling with trade, well-to-do, wealth-creating. And of one of his classes at the university, he says, I found myself in the awful position in which one is placed when a total sensory reorientation is, is required, a renunciation of all that I had up till then loved and thought good. The young poet further seems to have been linguistically disorientated, and we know that he spoke with a pronounced Frankfurt accent and used Frankfurt expressions. The final upshot of all this also helped on by a first love affair with a Leipzig girl called Kätchen Schönkopf was a complete collapse in health in the summer of 1768 when he was 19. In fact, it was touch and go whether he'd pull through at all. But this is important. 
Friends nursed him for a month, and then he was transported home. One doesn't know precisely, but all the evidence seems to point to a severe lung hemorrhage, indicating tuberculosis. He recovered, however, and understandably experienced a rebirth back into life, what he referred to later, also with other crises in mind, as a kind of Wiederholte Pubertät, or repeated puberty. Indeed, Goethe's whole career, I believe, establishes itself as a kind of alchemical life pattern. That's what I'd like to stress, of which I think he became conscious. Um, with the various illnesses and crises, especially this first and determining one, representing the first half of the famous alchemical formula solve et coagula, dissolve and coagulate of the prima materia in the retort. That first major illness we are talking about was certainly a process of disintegration, the negredo, blackening, and mortificatio of the first stages of the alchemical work prior to an essential for regeneration in the albedo or whitening process, the coagula coming together again. Now, all this, I think, would have been and indeed uh, was highly appropriate to a poet whose lifelong and greatest work, Faust, was to present in drama form the life and deeds of a notorious Renaissance magician and alchemist, with the very structure, as we'll see, and essence of that drama being itself alchemical. Um, Faust, I'll state this just at this point, Faust clearly, on his long zigzag and erring path, undergoes processes of transformation comparable to what one gets in the alchemical uh, um, uh, process. Um, and as uh, the angels are bringing Faust's immortal remains in the last pages of part two of the work, um, we get this, a famous statement that Goethe also in the text italicized. Wer immer streben sich bemüht, den können wir erlösen. He who always striving exerts himself, um, we are able to redeem. And this is almost in a sense parallel to, um, I won't go into this, um, the end of part one with the, um, um, with the tragedy of Gretchen, uh, who is in prison and about to, be t uh, about to be condemned to death just after she's drowned her illegitimate child from Faust. But she again, like Faust, is also saved. Um, f fusing for a moment the young Goethe's first illness with this drama, we can quote Jung in his Psychology and Alchemy, volume as he meditates what happens in religious or simply individual crises when we come up against what he calls activated archetypes of the collective unconscious. This is Jung now. An example of this is the descensus ad inferos, the descent to the lower regions, depicted in Faust. There he is referring to um, the famous scene in part two, uh, which I will be concentrating on uh, later, uh, Faust's descent to the mothers, to uh, den Müttern, which consciously or unconsciously, um, Jung says, is an opus alchemicum. And he says this, um, relating himself very, uh, uh, commenting more on, on Faust here, but also bringing himself in, um, 
feet first, as it were. I regard my work on alchemy as a sign of my inner relationship to Goethe. Goethe's secret was that he was uh, in the grip of that process of archetypal transformation which has gone on through the centuries. He regarded his Faust as an opus magnum or divinum. He called it his main business, and his whole life was enacted within the framework of this drama. Thus, what was alive and active within him was a living substance, a suprapersonal process, the great dream of the mundus archetypus, or archetypal world. I myself am haunted by the same dream, and from my eleventh year I have been launched upon a single enterprise which is my main business. My life has been permeated and held together by one idea and one goal, namely to penetrate into the secret of the personality. Everything can be explained from this central point, and all my works relate to this one thing. Um, to backtrack a little, when the young student was invalided home in that late summer of 1768, he re-entered a world to some extent still in keeping with what his native city had been in the 17th century, namely a centre of alchemy, one of the great publishing venues for hermetic literature with its famous Frankfurter Buchmessen, the Frankfurt book fairs that we still have today. In early December of that year, the young Goethe had another setback during the course of his illness and was treated by Dr. J.F. Metz, the medical doctor of an old family friend on the mother's side, Fräulein Susanne von Kleckenberg, an active pietist. Metz was valued and respected among pietist circles for his alchemical knowledge, treating his young patient for what seems to have been a tubercular lymphatic swelling on his neck, what recently we used to call TB glands. I can't quite reconcile the two things here because I'm told medically that if you get... Um, uh, TB glands, or used to have them, you don't see them around so much today, then they act as a kind of, of safety valve for TB uh, not going onto the lung. Uh, but again, I, I'm, uh, we can only speculate on the overall collapse of Goethe. But this is quite definite because we have a record of, of this and Goethe picking up this particular point. We know he was uncomfortable for weeks with what had happened to Dr. Metz's treatment of glands on his neck. Um, that was successful, but there was a serious relapse in January the following year from which the patient was brought around in the dead of night by Dr. Metz administering a file of alchemical crystallized salt. After his full recovery in the spring, Goethe was naturally fascinated by the substance and was told it was universal existing in countless forms and discoverable by each person for himself. This information certainly was one of the reasons why, as soon as he was better, uh, the young Goethe began a thorough study of alchemical literature and practice. And here, too, I think also we get probably the origins of his idea of what he called later uh, uh, das Urphenomen, the primal phenomenon, um, and um, this he sought, apart from anything else, in the form of um, a uh, botanical equivalent. He looked for what he called his urpflanze, or primal plant, and thought that he, he discovered it in a garden in Palermo, in Sicily, when he was on his Italian journey. But this is important. 
Anyway, he set up experiments at home and bought himself a copy of Georg von Welling's vast compilation, Opus Mago Kabbalisticum et Theosophicum, 1735, whose sources he began to explore with Fräulein von Klettenberg, Basilius Valentinus, a pseudonymous early 15th century writer, and above all, the medical writings of Paracelsus. Fräulein von Klettenberg seems to have been rather heterodox in her views, even for a Moravian pietist, for she recommended um, uh, Georg Arnold's Unparteiische Kirchen und Ketzehistorie, an impartial history of churches and heretics, 1699-1715, um, to the young Goethe, and several books on Neoplatonic cosmogony. To use Kathleen's seminal formulation, the young Goethe was therefore early on inducted into the language of the imagination. No question of this. Now, in a fascinating uh, book by the Jungian scholar Alice Raphael, Goethe and the Philosopher's Stone of, of 1965, um, Alice Raphael brings together the colliding traditions of French rationalism and indigenous alchemy that I've mentioned a little in connection with Goethe's uh, biography, um, plus related anti-rationalist strands, basing her own conclusions on the work of a French uh, uh, researcher called Christian uh, Lepant. He brought out a book on Goethe and occultism eight years previously in 1957. Now, there's quite a substantial passage that I want to quote, and I want to comment on it, but I'll leave the glossing till after I've read it, because there are a number of figures that you may not know at all. And some, I, um, at least one, um, I couldn't really find anything about. It was fortunate, this is Alice Raphael now, it is fortunate, says Lepant, that Goethe could know at one and the same time the physics of Winkler and the rise of mesmerism, the first experiments with electricity and the surviving practices of alchemy, the works of Boerhaave and of Paracelsus. To this good fortune was added the fact that he was born in the Germany of the 18th century, where more vitally and more, and more forcefully than elsewhere, the two currents of rationalism and occultism confronted each other. That's important. The first in the wake of Leibniz and Wolf, this Christian Wolf, philosopher, prevailed in the universities and in the intellectual circles where French influence was not out of fashion. The second existed among dissatisfied dissidents from all orthodoxies. This occultist movement turned upon two axes. The one passed through Strasbourg and Lyon, the two traditional capitals of European mysticism. The other passed through Königsberg, which received Swedenborgian ideas directly from Sweden. You know, so, um, Königsberg is right away up in Prussia, which, uh, um, and was the homeland of Hamann, E.T.A. Hoffmann, and Zacharias Werner. At Lyon and at Strasbourg, where Martinism also was favorably received, Caliostrian lodges were established. I'll tell you about those in a moment. Mesmerism, likewise, was to flourish in these two cities. The prevailing mood of mystical effervescence was accentuated by the particularism of the religious dissidents, the pietistic circles, and those attracted by metaphysical problems. Adepts and initiates of the highest nobility were received in the drawing rooms of the visionaries, illuminés, Rosicrucians, and pietists, such as Dr. J.F. Metz and Fräulein von Klettenberg. 
Many German princes, such as Ferdinand of Brunswick, Charles of Mecklenburg, Charles of Baden, and Ludwig of Hesse, set an example by affiliating themselves with Martinistic sects, Illuminist or Freemasons. And at Wilhelmsbad in 1782, uh, Pierre-Jacques Villemose, I couldn't find anything about him, tried in vain to conciliate the divergent tendencies of the occultist movement into a universal church. Thus the soil of Germany seems to have been predestined, more than any other, to encourage the growth of a new spirituality. In Germany was confirmed, more than in France or England, the reverse aspect of rationalism and of religious and, in, and intellectual orthodoxies. Jung Stilling attributed this to the conjoined influences of French quietism, of Burma, of Paracelsus, and of the Enthusiast. And he saw this retreat from rigid orthodoxy as the original expression of a German national spirit, Nationalgeist. Now, um, to gloss some of the names here, um, the, the less well-known figures. Winkler is J.H. Winkler, 1703-70, mathematician and physicist whose lectures Goethe attended at Leipzig, together with some experiments in Newtonian optics. Mesmerism, of course, relates to Franz Anton Mesmer, who in 1775 formulated his theory of animal magnetism in which trance states were induced so as to restore bodily flow and out of which hypnotism eventually developed. Berhaver is Hermann Berhaver, 1668 to 1738, a Dutch physician and professor of medicine at Leiden University, famous apparently throughout Europe during his stay, and to whom students from Edinburgh and Vienna flocked. Goethe had two of his books, Elementa Chemia, 1724, and Aphorisms on the Recognition and Treatment of Diseases in 1709. Christian Wolff, of course, from 1679 to 1754, is the rationalist uh, philosopher, follower of Leibniz, and from whom Kant gained quite a bit. He's the stepping stone between Leibniz and, 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 and um, Kant. Johann Georg Hamann, however, 1730-88, called the Sage of the North, was a friend of Immanuel Kant, who also hailed from Königsberg, of course, and knew the work of Swedenborg, but unlike Kant, was totally distrustful of reason and was a mystical and powerful fideist in that he emphasized theological faith by making it the ultimate criterion of truth, minimizing the ability of reason to get at religious fundamentals. Um, Coincidentally, he visited England the year that Blake was born and underwent a profound religious conversion in London, becoming completely anti-enlightenment and after Burma, I suppose, writing some of the most darkly cryptic prose there is. There are similarities to Blake, I think, there. And understandably, he was a major influence on the Danish philosopher Kierkegaard. Zacharias Werner, 1768-1823, was a romantic dramatist who converted to, to Catholicism and wrote, among other things, a play on the Knights Templar. Martinism was the philosophical movement founded by Louis-Claude de Saint-Martin, 1743-1803, one of the leading exponents of what was known as Illuminism, an occultism with roots in both Burma and Swedenborg, that held uh, that man, as an embodiment of God's thought, had been placed in a dark world of symbols, which, when he had mastered them, either by his latent powers or occult means, would enable him to become an illuminist, that is, at one with God's radiance, radiated through by God's light. 
And Cagliostrian lodges were established by Alessandro, so-called Count of Cagliostro, 1743 to, to 95, a charlatan, magician, and adventurer who enjoyed immense prestige in Parisian society during the years just previous to the French Revolution. Travelled through Europe selling an elixir of long life and got involved with extreme Freemasonry, setting up his own Egyptian variety. When I uh, checked up on Cagliostro, I was reminded immediately in terms of the, of the dating of the year 1791, which is the date of the first production of Mozart's The Magic Flute. And for those of you who know The Magic Flute, of course, it has an Egyptian setting, and of course, it, the text of The Magic Flute and the themes in The Magic Flute are Masonic. Uh, um, Mozart was a Mason, of course. Um, and you get these Masonic chords, the famous trombone uh, signals in the overture. Um, finally, uh, Jung Stilling was Heinrich Jung Stilling, 1740-1817, author of a widely circulated autobiography, Heinrich Stilling's Jugend, or Youth, Pietistic in Nature, as was the second half of his surname, Stilling, added on with reference to, the, to Die Stillen, the, the, the quiet ones, the silent ones, that is the pietists themselves, like the Quakers. Now, I've gone into this in some detail, just not only to make the figures in Alice Raphael's passage uh, um, clear to you, but also what comes out of that is, gives you some idea of the intellectual currents that were moving around uh, during Goethe's youth and early manhood. This gives you a, quite a good picture of what was going on alongside the impact of, of uh, France, which was still fairly strong during Goethe's early uh, um, youth and manhood. Now, I'd like to sum up at this particular point before moving on. Um, Goethe's own life pattern, as I've presented it, and preoccupations seem to me to mirror um, the surrounding culture at its deepest level. That is, in the clash and collision of French and German rationalism with the older, more holistic tradition of alchemy and hermetic philosophy. But with the former, that is to say the rationalism, making uh, one highly conscious of the latter, that is to say, the meaning and significance of the alchemical hermetic tradition, thereby propelling it onto a higher level of consciousness. I think this is important for Goethe and for the rest of the German tradition. That is to say, let me make this quite absolutely clear, um, you have the alchemical hermetic tradition coming powerfully through from the earlier centuries with Paracelsus and, 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 and Burma and people like that, but a lot of other more minor figures. And then you get the Enlightenment exploding onto this, but, the, but not really, you know, kind of in no way demolishing or indeed in some ways making such a big impact, I feel, on Germany as it did in this country and in France. Because in, obviously, in spite of people like Leibniz and Wolf and Kant, and Kant in many ways is, 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 has qualities that makes him anti-enlightenment, or at least they lead on to 
The stress, as I said last week, the emphasis on the Einbildungskraft, the imagination, the power of the imagination in the mind, makes him a very central keystone figure. Uh, the point, therefore, to make is, uh, um, as I see it, and you get this with Goethe, the upshot of the rational um, a force against the older tradition and the older tradition coming through nevertheless makes the German thinkers we've been talking about and poets, I think, highly aware of what alchemy, the mind, the unconscious and everything else means. If I don't have time to say this later, I'll say it now. This is a link with Jung because um, those of you who've read quite a bit of Jung will, will know uh, or we have to know this because Jung labors it so forcefully. He sets himself up the whole time as an empirical scientist. He says the whole time Jung says that, you know, to, to brush aside all these criticisms of Jung as, as a vague mystigo. He says, I'm not that at all. He says, I'm, I'm, I'm an empirical scientist. The only thing is, he said, that uh, what I mean by empirical facts are things like dreams that are just as empirical as other things. But the important thing, I think, about Jung is that though his methodology is empirical, his model of the psyche, of the mind, is Goethean and German Romantic. It's not at all empirical. It's not at all uh, 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 mechanical. It is structured. It is meaningful. And it upgrades, uh, uh, quite obviously, the unconscious and everything else going with it. But he is aware of the rationalist side as well. Now, um, let, me go, let me pick out um, one widespread and dominant strand in the dissident mix that Alice Raphael was referring to. This is pietism. Not only, as we've seen, did it momentarily impress itself on the young Goethe, but Kant and Schopenhauer came under its influence. And the great and moving passions and cantatas of Johann Sebastian Bach, both text and music, are deeply rooted in this inner renewal of Lutherism. Going back to the 17th century and the so-called, as it, I'm translating now, pectoral heart theology of Johann Arndt, the father of pietism, as he's now seen to be. And perhaps it isn't also without significance that Prior to Luther himself, prior to the Reformation now, going back long before Pietism, of course, um, it was in 14th century Germany that the subject of the Pieta in art first appeared. I didn't know this. For, I, I can't remember when I, I discovered this, but uh, this is, this is um, art historically uh, uh, true. Um, it, it, it was invented, if that's the right word, in Germany before moving into France and down to Italy, where it was incorporated, of course, the most famous example perhaps is Michelangelo in his famous uh, late a sculpture of 1499 of the dead Christ across the Virgin Mary's lap. Now, this dramatic and powerfully emotional situation from the life of Christ was painted and carved in wood in late medieval Germany time and time again. You go all around the, the churches in Germany, southern Germany, you see 100 and 101 examples of pieters. The reason I'm, I'm bringing this out is because um, I think that in its expressive force and focus for devotion, the pieter... Um, constitute something peculiarly German. And you can certainly relate it to things like in Bach's in Matthew Passion, like O Hauptvoll Bluton Wunden, the famous chorale. And then we can think of the painter uh, Matthias Grunewald, 
the crucifixion and that at Colmar, now in France, with its expressionist features. I see a link there um, from um, the Pieta and through Pietism, and indeed, I shall say, uh, if I don't have time to say it again, through what is known as the Storm and Stress, the Sturm und Drang movement that formed the young Goethe and Schiller, right through to German Expressionism uh, in this century, in the work of Kafka, for instance, but other writers and painters as well. Um, now, out of this particular mix, the pietistic mix, coming, back, coming on now and to the 18th century, um, Perhaps one can see how the efflorescence of pietism that, the young, that affected young Goethe and others as well uh, could uh, be easily merged with um, what was happening in the secular sphere, namely the, uh, the, 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 uh, the growth of um, sentiment, or what is called in German Empfindsamkeit, um, and this was fueled particularly by outside literature. Um, the novelists, the English novelists, Richardson, Stern, and Goldsmith were very popular in Germany during this period. Um, they were translated and read extensively. Also, Edward uh, Young's Night Thoughts and the philosophy of Lord Shaftesbury with the stress on, on, on man's inner moral sense and goodness and so on. Um, Shaftesbury seems to have... Uh, been much more um, uh, tuned to the German uh, philosophic sensibility at the end of the 18th century, beginning of the 19th century, uh, and the beginning of the 19th century, than any of the empiricist uh, philosophers, Locke, uh, Hume, and so on, um, in uh, in this country. Anyway, all these um, um, forces assist, I think, in the breaking up process of the Enlightenment in Germany, what Alice Raphael uh, calls the reverse aspect of rationalism and of religious and intellectual orthodoxies. And of course, from Empfindsamkeit, the age gravitates quite quickly into the beginnings of Sturm und Drang, with Herder's Fragmente über die Neure Deutsche Literatur, fragments on the newer German literature of 1767, with their stress on language as Gesang der Natur, language as the song of nature. Um, and of course, we get coming with this pietism's emphasis on what was termed then, and this is very interesting because this picks up the theme of my uh, talk last week, which indeed goes through the whole of my three talks, namely, uh, stresses again, that German thinking and the writing going with it is basically holistic. The Germans are, are, are basically thinkers who, however and whatever they analyze, always like to synthesize, or synthesize first, go back, go then on to analysis, then resynthesize. They, they feel they have to uh, keep things together. And I mean, you can point to this in, in things like um, um, homeopathy, Hahnemann and so on. These are all uh, German uh, 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 discoveries, as it were. And as I said last week, Gestalt uh, psychology. Anyway, um, Pietism emphasized uh, what was known as Fühldenken, um, of, uh, of feel-thinking, literally, feeling thought, thought that feels, uh, feelings that think. Um, and 
this is very powerful. I haven't got time to show you this in operation um, in Goethe, uh, but in the young Goethe and in the beginning of Faust particularly, you see this operating in the language and the language of the nature hymns and lyrics as well. This is quite uh, powerfully there. Um, and it's out of this complex of the Fühldenken and the other uh, um, strands I've referred to that you get um, during the Sturm und Drang what is known as the emergence of Erlebnisdichtung, which really is the poetry of experience, as in, as in such it was. There was a, Goethe is one of the, uh, well, the key poet, I suppose, who breaks through all the artificiality of the French tradition, the galanterie, the wit, the, 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 the rococo spirit of the time. He, breaks, he, he does away with this completely, and he recharges his roots in, uh, in, in the currents that I've talked about. He reads Ossian, for instance, and Homer. Those are the natural geniuses that the Germans and Herder and that were talking about and praising. And with this comes through the beginning of the great German tradition in literature. The stress on nature, the rapport with nature, but also thinking about it, feeling with it, this kind of thing. Anyway, um, this Erlebnisdichtung is important because um, in Goethe and elsewhere, I think it's comparable with, just to make one small uh, comparison, with the work of the young Beethoven a little later um, in the 1790s who expresses his own Erlebnis musically in terms of what were called Mannheim Rockets. Now, Mannheim Rockets, <laughs> Mannheimer Raketen, were rapid upward progressions or arpeggios, a feature of Mannheim's court orchestra. He'd obviously heard and it was known about. And um, these progressions are mainly upwards, but you can have them downwards, often in wide leaps. And Beethoven makes that a staple of his, music person of his musical personality. A part of, 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 of uh, the Beethovenian dynamism is due to the importation into his music of these Mannheim rockets. But, of course, I, I, I mean, uh, you have to be a Beethoven to transform these and make them an integral part of your own Erlebnis or experience, as it were. But this is one of the cultural and formal kind of, of, of um, features of the early music. And, of course, this he develops more and more in all kinds of astonishing ways. Now, the concept and art of Erlebnis... I find characteristic of our tradition as a whole, from the Sturm und Drang through to Schumann, Wagner, German existentialist philosophy and expressionism, fine arts as well. Certainly in Heidegger, Kafka, the Rilke of the Duneser Elegien, for instance. I will say something specifically about the Erlebnis behind the uh, Duneser Elegien next week. But I just want to say this one uh, small rider to this particular part of my talk this evening, that we should remember when talking about Erlebnisdichtung that there are two words in German for experience. The one I've been using is Erlebnis, the other word is Erfahrung. But Erfahrung is a much more neutral word, and you wouldn't use it in this context. Erlebnis is something that you would use in this sense. Es war ein großes Erlebnis. It was a great experience. And you use this of something very special. 
Now, since Rilke had a special experience uh, behind the Duenese Elegian, a Leibniz would be the thing he uses for it. And indeed, this is what one would, uh, would think of. Uh, but if I may connect back to last week as well, um, the terminology that a language sets up, the various kinds of terms it uses and that other languages, interestingly, perhaps do not use, I believe are interesting markers of the sensibility and the soul of the language concerned. As with I mentioned last week, there are two words in German for history. History, which is simply history as a story, and Geschichte, which is history as development and change. And we, and we don't make this distinction in English, for instance. We may make other distinctions, but I'm trying to get inside the German tradition in this particular way. Now, um, just one small gloss from Erlebnis that I think is important to link it up with the, a part of the, of the tradition nearer home. Um, recently, I came across a, a very interesting and insightful comment by Ezra Pound on Yeats in 1914. I'm talking about a Leibniz feeling emotion and the way in which this is, is, is really explored and cultivated and expressed in Goethe, the young Goethe, Beethoven, and so on. Um, um, Ezra Pound said about Yeats, uh, after, uh, while he was Yeats's secretary uh, during the winter of 1914, he said this, Yeats learns by emotion and is one of the few people who have ever had any who know what violent emotion really is like, who see, it from, who see from the center of it instead of trying to look in from the rim. Well, you can certainly apply this to the young Goethe and to Beethoven, I think. And what is interesting here is that art of this kind, I think, is very often focused, certainly in, in, in Goethe and in Beethoven, is focused on the present with a gaze towards the future. This true of Faust, for instance, uh, and Goethe himself, concerned as both of them are, and particularly in Goethe's uh, uh, great drama, with the restless ideology of streben, of striving. Faust is, uh, is a streber, a striver. He's, he's, he's questing after something. This is why he, he makes the pact with Mephistopheles. Now, I'm not going to deal with the moral complexities of the Streben theme. If you want to talk about them afterwards or at any other point, I'm quite prepared to do this. But, um, or indeed the Gretchen tragedy, uh, because this has been worked over, both of these have been worked over pretty often. And I want rather, uh, from my point of view this evening, and particularly bearing Jung in mind, more interestingly, to concentrate on Faust as a work of alchemy, psychology, and imagination and deal then with this descent to the mothers. Um, now, um, Faust himself, as Jung clearly saw, um, is divided or fallen psyche presented in alchemical terms. Um, in the epilogue to his Psychology and Alchemy volume, we find this acknowledgement by Jung. I'll quoting Jung now, alchemy had reached its final summit and with it the historical turning point in Goethe's Faust, which is steeped in alchemical forms of thought from beginning to end. Now Jung doesn't precisely say in what this historical turning point consists. 
But insofar as he refers to, quote Jung, modern man disguised in the figure of Faust, he would seem to imply that Goethe's hero is not basically the medieval alchemist he is, he is presented as. Um, in fact, one could argue, uh, I would want to argue that, the, that, 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 um, uh, that Faust, Goethe's, the figure of Faust now, is really um, a kind of um, a hero of the Sturm und Drang in the form of an alchemist. But this makes it even more interesting because what Faust as a drama seems to do, and this is what I think uh, um, Jung has got on to, is that it psychologizes alchemy. Or perhaps rather more accurately, it alchemicizes psychology. That is, it presents psychology through an alchemical guise, as it were. And in reverse, as I see it in the 20th century, what Jung does is to psychologize alchemy. If Jung alchemicizes psychology, then Jung, uh, if Goethe alchemicizes uh, psychology, then Jung uh, psychologizes alchemy. Uh, and they meet, as it were, the two hands join over that distance in time. Um, now, Interestingly, in terms of the divided um, psyche that obviously um, Faust represents, the famous uh, uh, beginning line of that uh, monologue early on to Wagner when he's his, his disciple or student, uh, when on the Easter walk outside the city gates, Zwei Seelen wohnen ach in meine Brust, two souls. Uh, uh, dwell, alas, in my breast. You have a very interesting comment by Jung on that particular um, uh, scene or that particular um, monologue. He says this, a general statement, the division of the psyche into a Shen soul, these are Chinese terms now, um, in, into a Shen soul and a Kui soul is a great psychological truth. This Chinese conception is, well, is, is echoed in the well-known passage from Faust. Two souls, alas, are housed within my breast. This is the, uh, quoting from the uh, Philip Wayne translation in Penguin. It isn't very accurate, incidentally, but it's accurate enough here for the time being. Two souls, alas, are housed within my breast, and each will wrestle for the mastery there. The one has passions craving, crude for love, and hugs a world where sweet the senses rage. The other longs for pastures fair above, leaving the murk for lofty heritage. The existence of two mutually antagonistic tendencies, both striving to drag man into extreme attitudes and entangle him in the world, whether on the material or spiritual level, sets him at variance with himself and accordingly demands the existence of a counterweight says Jung. This is the irrational third Tao. Um, hence the sage's anxious endeavor to live in harmony with Tao, lest he fall into the conflict of opposites. Since Tao is irrational, it is not something that can be got by the will, as, as Lao Tzu repeatedly emphasizes. This lends particular significance to another specifically Chinese concept, Wu Wei. Wu Wei means not doing which is not to be confused with doing nothing. Mm -hmm. Our rationalistic doing, 
which is the greatness as well as the evil of our time, does not lead to Tao. And it's interesting that Jung says in another uh, connection that the, it's characteristic of the Western mind, maybe he was not thinking of Goethe here, putting Goethe in this, but he says it's characteristic of the Western mind that it has no word for Tao. It has no, it, it has no word for Tao. The concept as such doesn't exist, Jung is saying. And um, it is the middle uh, road, he says, between the opposites, freed from them, and yet uniting them in itself. Here we get to that great principle that Jung calls the transcendent principle later, that unites the opposites, or, uh, uh, the dialectics of the psyche. Now, essentially what I'm saying about Faust is in Faust you get something similar. Faust's zigzag path is a dialectical path uh, where he's trying to sometimes with uh, very little luck at all, um, unite himself as he goes right the way throughout his uh, um, uh, frenetic uh, career, um, and yet uniting them in itself. Here we get to that great principle that Jung calls the transcendent principle later that unites the opposites or uh, uh, the dialectics of the psyche. Now, essentially what I'm saying about Faust is in Faust you get something similar. Faust's zigzag path is a dialectical path uh, where he's trying to, sometimes with uh, very little luck at all, um, unite himself as he goes right the way throughout his uh, um, uh, frenetic uh, career. We will see how this goes. First of all, uh, Faust is from the very beginning, coming back to the Zwei Seelen monologue, quite conscious of the divided and tormented state of the psyche he is in. Uh, and particularly the swings of elation and despair that permeate him. And it's out of this situation that after invoking uh, with the sign of the macrocosm, um, and then directly the ergeist, or earth spirit, without positive outcome, a little later on his Easter Monday walk outside the city gates with his disciple Wagner, that he invokes the geister in der Luft, spirits of the air, to provide him with a magic cloak or Zaubermantel, so that he can fly off after his desires. Retrospectively, it becomes quite clear that Mephisto is one of his two souls. Um, the one that holds, quote Goethe, the one that holds to the world with coarse love lust and clasping sense organs. That's out of the Zweizelen monologue. Um, since that is the realm Faust is largely led through, even though he will respond to it and interpret it differently from his guide. As Jung says, a real familiaris, an obliging, if somewhat dangerous spirit. Um, and he says, one can see that Faust and Mephisto are the same person. This is Jung. Mephistopheles is the diabolical aspect of every psychic function that has broken loose from the hierarchy of the total psyche and now enjoys independence and absolute power. This total psyche is seen in the early sections of Faust as twofold, oppositional, yet complementary, in short, dialectical. I see Faust's uh, career through the play as being a dialectical hither and thither um, as he goes through. But it branches out later to include Gretchen, then Helen as Faust's anima, and little um, alchemical uh, artificial uh, little man that is, that is produced, homunculus, or Euphorian, Faust and Helen's son. Uh, Faust has, has, has a son by Helen that he 
um, calls up from the lower regions as a kind of, of in Jungian terms, a pure Aeternus, the eternal boy figure. And this makes out of it a fourfold structure. You go from a twofold oppositional structure in terms of Faust and Mephistopheles as you go through the play into um, a fourfold structure. And with this also, a higher amalgam, a new entity. Um, this would seem to win through at the close and ascend with the help of Das ewig weibliche, the eternal feminine, in the form of the now the, the, the soul of the dead Gretchen who helps to save Faust at the end of the play. So that when Faust talks about one part he wants to go to den gefilden hohe Ahnen, the zwei Seelen, two souls monologue early on, the fields of lofty ancestors with its Elysian overtones, he little knows how prophetic this is going to be. And he escapes the devil's clutches at the end of the play, um, and we, know, we will remember that his immortal remains float upward, or as the stage directions have it, um, angels hovering in the higher atmosphere are carrying Faust's immortal remains. Um, but it's interesting that Goethe's first version of this stage directions was, I'll give you the German for this, Chor der Engel über den über den Berggipfel Faustens Entelechie heranbringend. A choir of angels above the mountain tops are bringing up Faust's Entelechie, where the Greek philosophical term from Entelecho, meaning literally to be in perfection, refers to uh, the realization or actuality of what was once potential. Um, making the whole a very Goethean issue. May, I think this is a reference back to the Lord's statement in the prologue in heaven where he says that, uh, that a man, uh, something, I'm just off the top of my head now, in seinem dunklen Drange weiß something, uh, uh, he knows exactly a, a, a man, or it, he's referring to Faust, of course, that even in the kind of the tumult of his dark longings and the rest of it, he will know eventually what to do, as it were. And the outcome is therefore um, positive. Now, um, at the beginning of the play, um, uh, that a man, uh, something, I'm just off the top of my head now, in seinem dunklen Drange weiß something, uh, uh, he knows exactly a, a, a man, or it, he's referring to Faust, of course, that even in the kind of the tumult of his dark longings and the rest of it, he will know eventually what to do, as it were. And the outcome is therefore... Um, positive. Now, um, at the beginning of the play, um, Faust, I've already, uh, 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 Faust, uh, before Mephistopheles uh, come, comes in, he is in despair because he's not satisfied by the, by the knowledge, the, 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 the scholarship that he's been brought up on. He wants something totally different. And he tries to save the situation by invoking two, um, uh, two characters, if that's the right word. He invokes, first of all, the, the sign of the macrocosm, uh, and then later the spirit of the, um, of the earth, the erdgeist, the earth spirit. Um, these are important, I think, because 
Um, what we get in both cases, but in a different way with each of them, is a picture of what you might call a stable environment against which we see Faust's divided uh, um, uh, um, psyche and his strivings being highlighted. Um, let me just give you uh, the one example in terms of, the, of what Faust uh, sees when he contemplates the sign of the macrocosm. Uh, he says, I'll give you the English first of all, or only bits of the German, because my time is, is short. How everything weaves together, one in the other functions. He's looking at this in his uh, book of, 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 of magic, of white magic. One in the other functions and lives, like heavenly powers rising and falling and handing round those golden pails or buckets. That's, that's the image Goethe used. With pinions fragrantly blessing from the heavens right through to the earth and harmoniously resounding all through the cosmos. I'll just read you that quickly in German because the German is beautiful and you can't translate. Goethe is very difficult to translate. Um, there's the music, there's the imagery. Wie alles sich zum Ganzen webt, eins in dem anderen wirkt und lebt. Wie Himmelskräfte auf und niedersteigen und sich die goldene Eime reichen. Mit Segen duftenden Schwingen von Himmel durch die Erde dringen, harmonisch all das All durchklingen. Um, what this beautiful passage captures is the picture of the macrocosm and its spiritual workings evoked in Faust's mind by his contemplating the sign in front of him, which is an illustration in one of his books, as I said, of white magic, or rather pan-sophism, universal wisdom. This was the word or the term that was current during Goethe's uh, uh, um, uh, age and before. And the latter term, interestingly, was one coined by the great Czech educator and scholar Comenius, Jan Amos Komensky, 1592 to 1670, to represent not only his philosophy, but a basic principle by which all knowledge he thought, he established a new system of education, could be harmonized. For he believed, Comenius uh, uh, um, uh, now, for he believed that everyone could be trained to see the underlying harmony of the cosmos, thereby overcoming its apparent disharmony. Uh, and in some ways, um, I, I, I thought about this between last week and this week, it seems to me there you have an early form of the German Bildung in its real and true sense. But pan-Sophic worldviews were fairly current during Comenius's lifetime um, in Kepler and in Jakob Burma. Indeed, the kind of macrocosmic sign that Goethe had in mind um, for Faust here is probably um, similar to the copperplate ones in the Burma-Amsterdam edition of 1682 that Goethe knew, or taken from a book we've already mentioned, that uh, Georg von Welling's opus uh, uh, Margo Kabbalisticum et Theosophicum. Um, anyway, um, Faust seems to be contemplating what would be a complex geometric figure of the cosmos in whose Rhein and Sugen pure features he sees active nature, I'm translating now, active nature stretched out before my soul. At first he is ecstatic, transported upwards as if a god, but then the abstract nature of the sign in spite of the beautiful Jacob's Ladder image he recreates for it, leaves him cold. Aber ach, ein Schauspiel nur, he says. But alas, only a spectacle. For what Faust really wants 
is full participation in the cosmic process, experience of it, not simply knowledge from outside, or perhaps experience as knowledge. This, I think, is important. And in this way, I think you can see how Faust as a figure comes close to uh, a representative of the Sturm und Drang movement, because they were the first, uh, as, uh, to the best of my knowledge, to lay emphasis not only simply and exclu exclusively on emotion, but on emotion as a way to knowledge. Through the emotions, you can get a kind of knowledge that you can't get in an abstract ob observational way. And so, because of this, he opens his book again and discovers the sign of the Erdgeist, the Earth Spirit. But he's terrified by the Earth Spirit. He appears in flame, and um, uh, he accuses him, does the Earth Spirit, of not being um, the, uh, you know, of the same nature as himself. Although, while he says what he is, he talks about uh, um, his activities, the Earth Spirit now, as... So schaffe ich am sausenden Webstuhl der Zeit und wirke der Gottheit lebendiges Kleid. Thus I work on the humming loom of time and create God's living garment. And again you see him in, in, in Lebensfluten, in floods of life, in, in, in a storm of deeds, going up and down. And it's the same movement, I think, in a only much more involved and, and, and much more at the center of things, um, as we get um, uh, um, reproduced there uh, um, in... Um, diagrammatic form in terms of the sign of the macrocosmos. Uh, the regular undulating weaving notion of the Earth spirit activities um, really go along the same line. And what I think both occasions do is to give us, as I say, in their rhythmical counterbalancing and their cosmic qualities, um, a world um, against which Faust's strivings and his dialectical zigzags are highlighted and foregrounded. And in this way, I think what you get in Goethe is a very uh, beautiful picture of the old cosmos that he has inherited and the new man as Faust right up against this. And this is why the play, in part, is so fascinating. Now... Um, I will have to cut down some things, but I must go on to give you some account of another part of the dialectical movement. Now, there is various kinds of dialectic, let me sum up at this point, in Faust. There is, first of all, the dialectic of polarities or complementary uh, um, um, <coughs> values and, and, and activities in Faust on the one hand and Mephisto on the other, going against each other. They move forward, they fall back, and so on and so forth. There is also the two souls inside Faust, of which, of which Mephisto is simply the, the outer living projection. There is this dialectical conflict also in Faust. There is also the dialectics of Faust's action throughout the play. And then, um, on top of that... Or in terms of that, there is the movement uh, in connection uh, 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 on the part of Faust himself with uh, Mephisto in tow of upwards and downwards. With Mephisto, it's mainly down, of course. But notice that if you look at the play as a whole, um, at the end of the play, um, Faust's um, entelechy 
or immortal remains, um, we see carried upwards through various uh, um, layers of the spiritual world. Before he can get there, however, he has to go right down to the bottom. So you get the dialectics of, um, of, of, of above and belows that were coming in the play as well. And this must have absolutely fascinated Jung. Now, the particular um, um, going down to the depths that I want to look at is the descent to the inferos, the lower regions where he goes to visit the mothers. And this is perhaps the most remarkable of those descents that you, uh, that you get. This is a Walpurgisnacht, but this is uh, uh, even more important. Um, and it's the realm of the mothers. It's, uh, it's Mephisto who tells Faust about this. Um, and he has to. He doesn't want to. But his protege, that is Faust, has committed himself to raising the spirits of Paris and Helen... Uh, for the benefit of the Holy Roman Empire and his court, and as a show of his magical powers. And um, the only way he can do this is by descending to the lower depths and bringing back, bringing back a tripod uh, which, whose smoke then will enable the forms of Paris and Helen to, uh, to appear. So in the fifth scene of Act I of Part Two appropriately titled Finstera Gallery, or Gloomy Gallery, rather, there are sinister overtones here, the two on their own, as I say, Faust with Mephisto together, there's nobody else in this scene, um, broach the problem. Mephisto says, to begin with, however, das Heidenvolk geht mich nichts an, es haust in seiner eigenen Hülle, pagan people aren't my concern, they reside in their own hell. I can't do anything about this. But there is a way, he suggests, uh, via the mothers. Nach ihre Wohnung magst in tiefste Schürfen. You will have to prospect in the lowest depths for their domicile. When Faust asks which actual path he will have to take, Mephisto replies, no path, into untrodden and treadable regions, a path to unpetitioned regions, not to be gained by entreaty. Are you ready? I must read the German here because there are rhymes and all kinds of things. Kein Weg ins Unbetretene, nicht zu Betretende, ein Weg ans Unerbetene, nicht zu Erbittende, bist du bereit? It is much more exciting and rather more sinister in the German. Anyway, um, it's a totally mysterious realm marked only by emptiness and solitude, as if Mephisto, Faust says, were the erste alle mystagogen, the first of all mystagogues who ever betrayed Troia neophyten, true or faithful neophytes. And clearly it's a kind of initiation, but of a very strange kind. And Faust will have need of a magic key that glows and flashes in his hand in order to find his way. This he gets from Mephisto. And Mephisto also says this, Versinke denn, ich könnte auch sagen, steiger, es ist eine lie. Sink then, I could just as well say, climb, it's all the same. That, I think, must be Heraclitus. The way up and the way down are the same. Goethe was very much aware of and influenced by Heraclitus, particularly Heraclitus' view of flux and change was very much in tune with Goethe's view of nature and the world altogether. This dynamic, changeful quality. And the realm that we are going to now would, pro would seem to be either beyond or outside space or time. 
And you could say, in Jung's terms, it is, of course, the bottom layers of the unconscious, of the psyche in a way, where time, of course, does not operate. Um, anyway, um, about ten lines later, um, Mephisto again refers to the depths in his alerting Faust to a tripod he will find down there and which he will have to bring back with him via his magic key. A glowing tripod will at last make known to you that you have come to the deepest, the very deepest found, uh, foundation. Um, and there, seemed, there would seem to be here overtones of either Delphi or some kind of inner sanctum belonging to a temple. This is there uh, uh, um, as well. Um, anyway, um, by the light of the tripod, he will see the mothers, one or the other sitting, the other standing or moving around just as happens. And then Mephisto makes the revealing ob observation. Formation and reformation, eternal meanings, eternal conversation with itself. Gestaltung, umgestaltung des ewigen Sinnes, ewige Unterhaltung. The goddesses, or the Göttingen, as he has earlier termed them, seem to embody precisely these processes as they sit, stand, and move around. And a few lines previous, Faust was directed to flee that which exists into freed regions of imagery, of images. What Goethe therefore seems to be bodying forth in the mothers and in and their realm in the living and, um, and their realm is the living center where the imagination is at work and its ceaselessly creative feminine powers apparently he took the idea of the mothers from plutarch um, the name itself from from plutarch's life of marcellus and that of a realm of images from plutarch's on the decline of oracles um, from which also it seems the tripod with its shades of Delphi and Pythia comes. He also, since the scene wasn't written until late in his life, five years before he died in 1827, apparently he'd also read, there are a lot of classical sources behind the scene, he also read, to my surprise, I've only recently found this out, uh, he'd read Pausanias's description, uh, he had Greek, of course, but um, he read Pausanias's description of Greece, which refers to visits in the first century AD to various um, ruined temples and that, and this was translated by Thomas Taylor in 1794. Um, now, I don't know what else Goethe had read by Thomas Taylor, but he certainly made use of not only of Taylor's translation, but a commentary on, uh, on Pausanias as well. Now, my time is, is already over, but I, ha I have to make one or two more points with regard to the mothers. Um, the, the, the descent to the mothers was a scene from Faust that absolutely fascinated Jung. Um, as, one as one can imagine, he would have seen in it a journey to the collective unconscious and its ruling female archetypes, with the descending hero as ambassador from the conscious world confronting the awesome terrain and powers of the unconscious. He says, actually, the con this con uh, uh, the co in Mysterium Conjunctiosis, one of the volumes in collected works, the confrontation is expressed in the alchemical myth of, he's talking generally now, but he comes to, to Goethe in a moment. Um, the confrontation is expressed in the, in, in the alchemical myth of the king as the collision of the masculine spiritual father world ruled over by King Sol, or son, with the feminine chthonic mother world symbolized by the aqua permanens, or by the chaos. 
It is as though Sol had to descend to the watery deep of the sublunary world in order to unite the powers of above and below, as in Faust's journey to the mothers. And, and Jung sees the journey to the mothers as the dark polar opposite to Gretchen's and Faust's eventual rise up into the spiritual stratosphere at the end of part two of the play. Um, he also sees, but I haven't got time to go into this, he has a fascinating passage on the fact that the play, that the, where the mothers are is also the place where the diamond lives. Um, the, that force who propels a man to something whether he likes it or not and which Goethe himself referred to. Goethe was, was very much aware of what, in German, it's das Dämonische. It, nothing to do with demonic in the Christian sense, but daimon in the Greek sense. Goethe says this was behind every great activity uh, of um, you know, um, um, artistic um, activity. Every productivity of the highest kind, every significant aperçu, every invention, every great thought which bears fruit and consequence lies in the power of no one and is elevated above all earthly uh, might. He's talking there about the, about the diamond. Now, just to um, tie up what else we get there, um, in another scene of the play, um, uh, this is after, after he has come back now with the tripod, and he, he is then, um, uh, Faust is addressing, he's, 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 he's really addressing the mothers who are not present, but he says something, this is before he gives, he, he raises up the, 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 the spirits of, or the forms of Paris and um, Helen, who are really, uh, one can say, uh, examples of Goethe's urbilder, urphenomena, uh, exa uh, exemplars of beauty, as it were. He says this, this, I'll just read basically the English. In your name, mothers, you who throned in the illimitable, eternal, uh, eternally living in solitude, life's images hover round your heads, active yet without life. What once existed in all its gleam and shine stirs and moves there, since it will be eternal. And you distribute it, all powerful, mighty beings, through the tent of the night and the vault of the night. Life's lovely course takes hold of some, the others are sought out by the bold magician. And with largesse and full of trust, he lets what each person wishes, that which is worthy of astonishment, to be gazed upon. This is what he does in presenting, in, in, in evoking or summing up the... Um, these these uh, spiritual forms. Now, um, what we get here really is um, what Faust has discovered down below reinforces what Mephisto has told him in the previous scene. The latter describes the mothers as hovered around by the images of all creatures. And now Faust says virtually the same thing as he addresses them in absentia preparatory to the, his magical act. Um, Life's images hover around your heads. These images are called in German regsam, active, but also ohne Leben, without life. Um, they are not only the Urbilder, as I've said, but they are um, images of two kinds. Uh, in the German, he says, the einen, uh, that is, say, some of the mothers, the einen fastest Lebenshalderlauf, life's lovely course takes hold of them, 
This is, uh, I'm sorry, this is what happens to uh, the images that, the, uh, that are hovering on the heads of, the, um, of these goddesses. Um, and that is life or nature grasps these primal images and manifests them in a myriad ways and uh, variations. The way of nature herself. So that there are two kinds of images. The mothers produce the images of nature. It's like the workshop of nature. And the, they also, the other uh, um, um, goddesses, they do this. Um, they produce images that are sought out by de Kuna Magia, the bold magician, Faust himself, for example. And what is interesting there, that Goethe had a, um, a, a line that he then excised and put the magician instead of it. The Anderen, these other um, um, images, sucht getroste Dichter auf. The others are sought out by the poet confidently. So we get in the realm of the mothers, as far as I can see, the deep wellhead of the creative imagination of the artist and the imagination of nature at the same time. There are two kinds of images being created by the mothers there. Um, the forms of nature, which Goethe was very interested in his morphological studies, and the forms that are discovered through the imagination by the artist. We see, if you like, the deep unconscious at work, which what is what would have interested Jung, and also in a cosmic sense, Goethe believes that you see the forms of nature being created at the same time, and he makes a direct connection between them. So Goethe, the poet, the magus, and the naturforscher, the nature researcher, all meet at this one point in Faust. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. I'm sorry, I, I had to cut down there and, and come quite quickly, to, but I wanted to get that particular... It seems to me it, it, the, the Mothers is, is, is an absolutely fascinating piece of writing there.